Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Here's the writer of a military history from the art from Osman to Ataturk after me. And I'm trying to hold my mood right here so you can see it for yourself. He is Masoud Oyar. I hope I said the name correctly. Uh, and I always try to ask in the beginning of the podcast, you know, to get to know the guests a little bit. How, how did you get interested in the Ottoman army and the military side of the Ottoman Empire? Well, uh, once upon a time, I was a professional military officer. History was always my area of interest. And I tried to blend history with my profession. But initially, instead of getting history academic education, I prefer to get a politics uh, master's and international relations PhD. So uh, my real area of expertise is and previously was war studies. So war studies makes use of military history to understand the current affairs and to predict what will happen in the future. So by using military history as a database, they create theories or test their theories. Uh, So initially I was planning to uh, work on current conflicts and what the future conflict, what the future wars would be. Uh, But instead of using readily available Western databases, I decided to make use of Turkish military history in order to make a difference, and which is also an area of interest of me. But unfortunately, when I got into the Turkish history books, I found out that uh, they are not useful as a database, not providing the numbers, not providing the data uh, I was looking for. So I decided to create my own database, mining the data from the archives, and in the meantime, learning the Ottoman script. Uh, You know, before 1928, uh, the Turks were using Arabic letters to write down Turkish, and for modern Turkish people, it is uh, not possible to read the old texts before 1928. Anyway, so slowly and surely, I slided into military history. And at one point, I decided, okay, I found out lots of things. Let us write some military history articles. And all of a sudden, I found out that people more interested about my military history products than my war studies products. And uh, the book you are holding is one of my first book. And 
uh, it is also the beginning of my serious interest into uh, military history. So I ended up in Ottoman military history, in a sense, quite by chance. I would rather happy to deal with contemporary Turkish military issues or contemporary Middle Eastern conflicts, but uh, with some luck or unluckiness, I ended up in Ottoman military history. And that quite that quite fascinating to read an Ottoman Empire is really a fascinating empire to study. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, one of the problem right now haunting the Ottoman history is the Ottomanists. I mean, the scholars, the historians, uh, expert on Ottoman history. It's a small group of people, and they are not producing books and articles for general uh, public, even the general historians. So they are producing products for their own use. So it's a very close uh, xenophobic uh, group. And this is one of my uh, aim or target. I would like to make the Ottoman military history part of the global uh, military history. Nowadays, uh, Ottoman army, Ottoman armed forces, and Ottoman military history treated as something unusual, uh, bizarre. So all the lessons and experiences not useful for global military history, which is, according to me, nonsense. Mm. And when a Western military historian or a reader would like to learn an ordinary information, uh, it is nearly impossible to get this information. They need to learn Turkish. They need to read four or five books in order to get a paragraph long information. And I think a very few people actually dedicate themselves to actually do that, go that far just to learn a few paragraphs. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, uh, that is the reason most of the uh, military historians unable to make use of the Ottoman military history, because uh, even the simple information not readily available. And that is one of the reasons I have written down that book. Hmm. So let's start with some of the branches. And of course, one of the most famous, and like I said, I think you stated in the book as well, that they the army is the very backbone of the empire. And let's start with the Janissaries. So how do, and I want to ask you actually, because the Janissaries is arguably one of the most famous parts of the empire. But this, what many people may not know is that the Seljuks actually originated as a sort of Janissaries, but again, they rebelled. And of course, that's how we get a famous Seljuk empire. So why did the Ottomans Ottomans succeed with the Janissaries, unlike what the Seljuk Turks did? Well, uh, the Ottoman military system is was a combination of uh, Islamic Middle Eastern military system plus the nomadic uh, military tradition coming from Central Asia plus Byzantine and uh, East European military traditions. So the Ottomans blended this three uh, diverse military tradition and created something unique. So 
if you delve into any Ottoman military institutions, including Yanicheris, uh, you will find out uh, the originating ideas from uh, different military traditions. For example, Yanicheris was a military slave corps and conventional infantry, but all of them military slaves. So the idea of military slaves born in the Islamic uh, military system. Uh, so during the uh, Abbasi period, the Abbasids, uh, several caliphates created armies out of the military slaves and Initially, they made use of the local sources. Later on, they imported slaves from the Caucasus or Central Asia. So the military slave institution was there in the geography already. The Ottomans converted this uh, institution into something viable and better for them. And one of the shortcomings of the Islamic military slave system, you always depended upon importing slaves from distant lands. So the Ottomans initially tried to make use of prisoner of wars, transform them into janissaries, but it didn't work well. So they decided to create the infamous Devshirme method. That means getting uh, sons from the uh, Christian Balkan nations, mainly uh, the Serbs, Croats, the Bulgarians, and at an early age, of course, and having them train in a very long period of time, transforming their mm. bodies and minds and culturally transforming them into Muslim Turks. Although these Yenicheris never forget about their origins and we know from some famous examples like Sokullu Mehmet Pasha, they uh, return back to establish connection with their family members. And Sokullu Mehmet Pasha, by becoming the uh, Grand Great Wazir, he managed to uh, construct some bridges, public uh, facilities for his uh, fellow mates in his uh, origin hometown. But so the idea of military slavery, the Ottomans got it from the Islamic uh, armies, Islamic military tradition, and transform it according to the sources available to them. And if we pay attention, forget about the military slavery side, but pay attention to the professional infantry soldiers. That is, that was the first after the Romans. So professional infantry corps was something reinvented by the Ottomans many years before uh, the famous uh, Spanish Tercios or the Dutch infantry, etc. So that is one of the things that I try to highlight in my book, because this is important for the global military history also. And not only that, as you mentioned in the book as well, that the 
for if a janissary were to die, they would provide health health care, I believe, and they would provide for the families for the fallen janissaries as well. So they had sort of a health care system. That's correct. I mean, when you create a professional course, you need to provide uh, lots of benefits to make it uh, wise, work-wise for the soldiers. I mean, although these are technically military slaves, but they are not in chains. They are free to do lots of other things, but they remain in love slaves of the Sultan. So this is an army having their loyalty to the Sultan himself. No other people, no other institutions. Uh, the system constructed in such a way that there is a personal loyalty to the Sultan. And the Sultan always uh, did his best to make his uh, elite soldiers happy giving them uh, retirement benefits. And uh, the Janissaries regularly collected money from their members and they invested in the economy. So uh, it, it is very early type of the capitalist system in the Ottoman Empire also. Mm -hmm. And Janissaries always took care of the uh, fallen uh, members kids, family, elderly janissaries, in addition to receiving pension, they had some rights to uh, continue living in the military barracks by providing some uh, simple duties. So this is a wholly very advanced system. Of course, uh, you need to compare the Janissary system with the contemporary cause in Europe or in the Middle East in order to understand how uh, well developed the system was. And hmm. um, how, how effective was the Janissary Corps? I mean, you, we talked about that they were well trained, but were they were effective when it came to the, the actual battles and, you know, sieges. Well, until the 16th century, Janissaries was an elite unit. So when you talk about elite, that means the numbers are limited. So until the uh, 16th century, their numbers never uh, reached the sailing of 30,000 or something. So we are not talking about uh, ordinary line infantry. We are talking about an elite unit. And this unit, uh, well-disciplined, well-trained, under very effective uh, command and control, and additionally, they're able to make use of not only uh, the firearms, but they can also uh, make use of uh, bow and arrows. They are very good archers. And this is something very important because uh, the early firearms very slow, primitive, and it was difficult to hit the targets. And that was the reason you have to fire uh, together, a volley fire. So the Janissaries, in addition to the firearms, they can able to use bow and arrow, good archers, so they can hit targets 75 meters. 
and in a minute, a Janissary can able to uh, launch 10 arrows, aim arrows. In a minute, with the primitive uh, rifle, you can only fire, if you are lucky, one. Most often, in two minutes, you're able to fire one shot. And if you're able to hit a target at 25 meters, you are very lucky. Janissary is very good infantry, but an elite call, that means they need to work with the mass infantry and cavalry. So the Ottomans generally make use of Janissaries at the center uh, with a system in German called Wagenburgers, uh, in Turkish called Tabur. So the system, the uh, Ottomans borrow it from the Hungarians and Hungarians borrow it from the Czech Hussites. So Wagenburg system means you have specially constructed war wagons and in the battlefield, you connect this war wagons, create a kind of a fortress-like structure. In the wagons, you have some firearms, uh, big ballista type uh, weapons, kinetic weapons, and the Janissaries waited the enemy behind the line, uh, Wagenburg line. So when the enemy approached, the enemy had to face the Wagenburg formation, this mobile fortress formation. And when the time is right, the Janissary is uh, overpassing this line and attack the enemy lines. The Ottomans perfected this Wagenburg system by making use of the cavalry at the right and left wing, forcing the enemy units canalized towards the Wagenburg formation. And the Janissaries, after tiring down the enemy with the fires from the Wagenburg formation, overpassed the formation and start firing. And in that sense, the tactics and techniques of Janissaries, uh, we have not, we, we do not have enough information, but what we have from the information we are getting from the battlefields, uh, I mean, the Swiss infantrymen uh, use pikes, long pikes to defeat the cavalry. Uh, they were tactically very mobile, but when they tried to move from one battlefield to another place, they had to depend upon other uh, transportation things. So uh, strategically, uh, the pikeman formation, not very mobile. The Ottomans instead make use of Wagenburg formation, which is strategically mobile, but tactically not that much. I mean, you can move to Wagenburg in a battlefield, but their movement capacity is very slow. And by using this formation, the Ottomans able to uh, achieve quite important battlefield victories up until the 16th century. So what happened in 16th century? Massive use of firearms. So the Ottomans, in order to fight their enemies, had to increase the number of the Janissaries. So after the 16th century, the numbers of the Genesis rises up and it reached nearly 100,000 personnel. And by becoming more, the Genesis sacrificed their elite characters mm -hmm. and transformed into line infantry. 
So the Janissaries are, of course, not the only branch of military the Ottomans had, and we don't have to talk about some of the other ones as well, like the Cap- who were the Capitulu Corps? Uh, sorry, can you? Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if you said this correctly, but the Capitulu. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yeah, Capitulu is uh, Janissary is part of the Capitulu uh, uh, system. So Capitulu's military slaves, Janissary is the infantry corps. Uh, there is the Capitulu cavalry. Uh, the cavalry part of this uh, system. Uh, we have the artillery, we have the ordnance sections, and we have even bombardiers within the Capiculo system. So the Capiculo system uh, include the Janissaries, but because the Janissary is more numerous and more famous, uh, the other branches of the Capiculo not known much. Uh, for example, the Kapukulu Cavalry uh, is an elite cavalry unit, uh, specially tasked to protect the Sultan, the commanders, and they are specially trained to hit the enemy army at the last moment, uh, giving them the final uh, str- uh, strike against the uh, enemy forces. And the artillery later on after 16th century gained much importance with the improvement of the firearms, with the introduction of new cannon types and ability to have more mobile portable uh, cannons. And uh, the other branches generally play more minor roles like the bombardiers, uh, they, they were separate from the artillery corps they gain importance during the 18th century, but before that, it's a very small group of uh, soldiers. And we have also the ordnance corps providing the weapons, maintenance, ammunition to the janissaries, the cavalry, and uh, the artillery uh, units. So all of them called it and at the same time, all of them military slaves. The best of them selected for uh, the Janissary course, the second best for the uh, cavalry, and the worst candidates ended up in uh, ordnance course. To be selected for cavalry, you need to be a Janissary, uh, show your valors and success, and then you may able to get promoted to the Cavalry cause of the Capiculo. And of course, they're, they're, they're the next branch is, of course, the artillery, which we don't have time to go through all the branches of the Ottoman army, unfortunately, because we have to go through other top areas of the Ottoman Empire as well. But let's add two more branches we don't, don't go through before we go to, go to part two, the sieges. And let's start the, the, so let's go to the next one, which is the artillery. So how did that artillery work in the Ottoman system? Well, uh, the artillery first introduced to the Ottomans uh, thanks to uh, getting capturing some weapons from the Balkan armies. And it looks like at that time, uh, we are talking about 1420s, 1430s. 
uh, it looks like at the time it was possible to hire foreign experts uh, to cast cannons and to use them. Because at that time, uh, when you are talking about artillery, you need to uh, pay attention the same guys also dealing with the production of the cannons and then using them. In Europe at that time, there was a special military engineering families, mostly Italian originated, uh, keeping their know-how sacred within their family and solving for different foreign masters with, of course, profit. The Ottomans initially hired uh, European military experts, but later on, they managed to train, educate their own uh, artillery experts, casting the cannons, production of the black powders, and uh, using them effectively. So in order to use the artillery effectively, the Ottoman sultans created a special artillery course under the Kapukulu system and uh, used military slaves to do that. And these people received a special, very long-term training. And depending upon their abilities, some of them used for the production of the cannons. The others used in ordinary uh, artillery roles. So the Ottomans had the advantage of their own military engineers to deal with the big problem of using the artillery effectively. Whereas in Europe, until the time of uh, 18th century, the Europeans had to depend upon military engineering families to receive this expert uh, artillery expertise. The Ottomans, in comparison to their enemies, created mobile foundries. So the Ottomans, instead of carrying large artillery pieces with them to the siege, they're able to cast the cannons on site at the siege site. So this gave them unique ability to deal with difficult castles on top of the mountains, etc. Because most of the time, you spent large effort to bring the cannons and ammunition to the siege site. The Ottomans most often cast the, their cannons on site and use them effectively. Another important element of the Ottoman success was the engineers. Perhaps uh, one of the most famous engineers is Urban, the Hungarian. Sorry? Perhaps one of the most famous engineers of the Ottoman times is Urban, the cannon engineer who made the cannon for the 2053. Urban, 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 yes. Uh, I'm going to say a lot of names thrown here today, so uh, forgive yeah, me. Urban uh, served in 1450s. The Ottoman yeah. cannons uh, gained uh, big importance uh, during the 16th century. So 50 years later than Urban. And the Ottomans able to create their own uh, military engineers by using different nations under the uh, Ottoman umbrella. The Ottoman system is 
an empire. An empire was successful if the empire able to tap the unique uh, specialties of the subject nations. For example, in a siege, in addition to artillery, unit combat engineers, unit sappers, unit uh, additional engineers to dig tunnels, to reach the under the uh, castle walls, explode them, or to make use of the uh, big uh, open spaces, develop them, etc. So the Ottomans initially make use of uh, simple workers, miners working in the Balkan mines. And one of the uh, neglected aspect of the siege of the Constantinopolis was having Serbian miners uh, digging under the walls, uh, causing the destruction of the walls. So the Ottomans essentially made use of lots of things. And for example, the Woban's famous uh, line of conservation, the siege tactics of the French uh, engineer Woban, actually the panda created during the Ottoman period also. The Ottomans created zigzag trenches, the Ottomans created the famous parallels around the uh, castles to reach the castle without suffering huge casualties. So, uh, problem with the Ottomans, the Ottoman system depend upon oral tradition. So the Ottoman military was not well fond of writing down their experiences. Mm -hmm. The Ottomans up until 18th century never produced military manuals. So the Ottoman system depend upon oral culture, on the job training, very laborsome, but at the end, you're able to teach the uh, new generation all the information you have. This oral tradition, unfortunately, left very few things. And that is why we need to make use of archaeology, battlefield archaeology. We need to make use of modern metallurgy to examine the Ottoman cannons, Ottoman firearms, to understand the level of their technology. And of course, the last, before we go to take a look at the few sieges that you as well mentioned in the book, the irregular army, then perhaps the infamous irregular army, and I'm probably going to say the name wrong again, or as they call it, the Basibukas, is that correct? Sorry? Basibukas, the irregular army. Uh, the, uh, you mean uh, auxiliary cause? And uh, no, uh, not no, exactly. No, 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 yes, that's it. That's it. Yes. Was, I'm going to say a lot of main names wrong in this episode. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Bashibozuk is a, the irregular troops or auxiliary troops named after uh, 18th century. So, previously, they had different names depending upon uh, their uses, depending upon. Uh, the type of weapons they are using or the geography they are coming. But after 18th century, these irregular groups, some of them volunteers, some of them mercenaries attached to the uh, conventional army named Bashibozuk. That means because uh, they didn't have uniforms, 
they didn't have established command and control system. And during the battles, uh, they generally acted without uh, discipline, without control. And that was the reason why they were called Bashibozuk. So uh, Bashibozuk means without having an effective commander's offices. So the Bashibozuks became the darling of the Western observers because these guys wearing very colorful outfits like the outfits of the German mercenaries during the early modern period. Remember the German mercenaries also loves to wear very colorful outfits and the Bashibozuk also wear colorful outfits. They were soldier of fortunes, dedicated their life for soldiering, for profit. And most often they came with some ladies, some of them their wives, some of them prostitutes, etc. So these are all very interesting things for the Western observers. So especially in 19th century Western observers, you learn many things about the Bashibuzuk, but the same Western observers pay limited attention to the conventional infantry and cavalry of the Ottomans. So you got the feeling as if the Ottoman army did not have any conventional troops, but only Bashibozuks, all, all these irregulars. So let's go to part two of the this episode, which is we go to drive a little bit back in time and start with the siege of Bursa. And you, you, I think you, you said that it took eight years to capture the city. So what, what took so long? Because they didn't really at the time have any trebuchet or heavy artillery at the time. So wasn't it difficult for the morale, considering it took so eight about eight years to capture birds? And wasn't it difficult for, with the morale, etc., to at that time, you are talking about the early period of the yeah. Ottoman uh, state, um, not empire, but a small emirate at that time. And the Ottomans did not have regular infantry corps. So you have most of your soldiers' light cavalry, and as you know, light cavalry simply useless for siege purposes. And you have some irregular infantry elements. If you do not have regular uh, infantry, you cannot uh, conduct a siege. Plus the Ottomans at that time, forget about artillery, no artillery at that time, but also they suffer difficulty to find combat engineers. So their solution was starving the cities. So they blockade the city all around. They uh, constructed some small castles, towers to close down the ways heading to the city. And they wait. And one tactic that the Ottomans play a lot during this early period was before the siege, frightening the villages around the city, forcing all the civilians to take shelter in the city, thereby increasing the population of the city. And when the siege started, uh, the sources available in the city uh, will disappear in a very short time. 
and the people in the end had to surrender. Why it took such a long time for Bursa and we have other long seats for another uh, city nearby, Izmit also, very long siege. The Ottomans unable to seal the cities effectively. So these cities able to receive some food and some reinforcements, able to penetrate into the Ottoman line around the city. And that was the reason why these uh, sieges took such a long time. And if the siege took such a long time, the Ottomans discovered that when you capture the city, most of the uh, structures in the city of no use anymore. You have half-starved population. That means you have to invest a lot of money and you have to bring additional people to repopulate the city. So the Ottomans learned lots of things about this. And that was the reason why the Ottomans decided to create Genissary Corps, a regular infantry capable of not only fighting at the battlefields, but also perform the siege duty. And uh, it wasn't a very effective way to siege a city either, I imagine. Well, uh, it depends, I mean, if you're able to starve the people, if you're able to frighten enough number of uh, peasants taking shelter in a city, you may be able to uh, capture the city in a short time. But the Ottomans initially, because they had light cavalry, irregular infantry, no engineers. So they couldn't capture the cities in a short time. And it looks like they have difficulty to blockade the cities effectively, an effective blockade. And of course, there was, there was a few stages in between, but Let's talk about that, of course. And if you want, you can you can check out the episode. I would highly recommend. We made an episode about this, about the siege of Constantinople with Professor Roger Crowley. It's a fantastic episode, I believe. And let's but let's talk about it here as well. So let's talk about the siege of Constantinople a little bit. Well, uh, if you take a look at the readily available uh, books in English, uh, you get the impression that the Ottomans succeeded to capture the Constantinopolis thanks to availability of uh, large bombards, huge cannons. I mean, the cannons, of course, uh, play an important role for the fall of the Constantinopolis. But the real factors that the Ottomans able to capture Constantinopolis in 1453 was uh, the Sultan Mehmed II. After capturing the Constantinopolis, he gained the uh, nickname the Congurer Party. in Turkish party. So Mehmed II at that time, very young, 23, 24 years old, but he was very bright. He understood the military affairs. At 19 years, I was hardly out of high school. Sorry? At 19 years, I was hardly out of high school. <laughs> well, uh, we are talking about completely different times and mm. you didn't born as a prince, I mean. Yeah. So Mehmed II was very bright and he tried to understand uh, the military technology also. He played a special role for the casting of mortars uh, for the city. But another issue was uh, the Byzantines 
able to uh, find ways to deal with the uh, cannons, these large bombards, uh, because they are so large, uh, they could not fire frequently. So there are two, three hours intervals after each balls hitting the walls. The Byzantines able to uh, create uh, earthen bastions, repair the walls. So in a sense, uh, at some point, uh, Mehmet II came to a deadlock because his cannons not serving the purpose. And that was the reason why he moved a portion of his navy on the hills, overpassing mm -hmm. the Galata Hills into Golden Horn, because uh, the Byzantine walls at the Golden Horn weaker than the land walls. So uh, Mehmet, by moving the uh, real uh, area of influence from the land walls to the Golden Horn, able to demolish the morale of the defenders. And because the defenders got frightened, they couldn't perform the effective defense against the uh, cannons. And in the end, the Ottomans able to penetrate into the city. But don't forget, uh, Mehmet II collected a huge army. Uh, so the numbers debatable, but we are talking about around between 70,000 to 100,000 soldiers all around the city. I mean, if you pay attention, the amount of food, the fodder and other kind of things this army using, cons consuming every day, it's a huge logistical nightmare. I mean, things about one soldier consume a kilo of food every day. A horse consumes five kilos of food every day. And you need to provide water, you need to provide sanitation, hygiene, to keep so thousands of people in a very narrow area. Do, so, we, have any, do we have any idea of number that Mehmet had in, in the siege of Constantinople, or do you have... Well, uh, currently, uh, the debate is between 70... 70,000 to 100,000. I think 70,000 is more uh, reliable numbers. But of course, within this 70,000, uh, we have also the numbers of the logistical elements, combat sports service elements, cooking food, providing transportation, providing military labor and other kind of things. Uh, so it's a very large undertaking. Mehmet II spent two years to prepare for this siege. He able to deal with uh, probable problematic areas in the Balkans and Anatolia. He created alliances uh, with the Genoese in order to balance the Venetian uh, issue. So in addition to military uh, affairs, uh, Mehmet II also deal with the diplomatic issues. And like I said, he also spent quite a long time to prepare the necessary logistical base in order to launch this siege. And it was all in all remarkable affairs. But if you get into the details of the siege, 
a few turning points, Mehmet uh, faced huge difficulties and he nearly gave up. He nearly gave up, but he able to continue on. And that was also one of the power of his leadership. Which of course brings us to the next part when we talked about the logistics and payment. How did you go about financing? Because as we spoke about in the previous episode with Professor Virginia Aksan, we talked about that one of the taxes was from the Christians in order to, for them to be able, one of the main incomes was incomes for the empire was the Christian tax taxation for allowing them to practice their faith, which was common in the Islamic world. But that was not have been the only taxation for the empire, was it? There must have been other financial aids as well. I mean, well, uh, the Christian tax, you mean poll tax, yeah. was important, but not the most important revenue. The most important revenue was land tax. But we are talking about an economy not basing on cash. Okay? Mm. So you simply cannot collect money from the taxpayers. Peasants paid their taxes in kind. So they're able to give you grains, vegetables, animals, but no money. And that was one of the problem of all the Middle Eastern countries, uh, sorry, Middle uh, Ages period uh, countries. All the Middle Age empires, kingdoms suffered from the same thing until the Dutch Republic, the cash economy uh, was not available. So when you collect taxes, for example, from Yemen, far away, on the very distant corner of the empire. The peasants providing you grain, camels, sheep, etc. How can you transport them to the areas that you need? So you need to create an effective system, military administrative system, to transform these taxes into a military power. And this is what the Ottomans did by developing the old traditions that they borrow from the Islamic countries, from the Byzantine legacy, they created Timaroid system. Timaroid system means you allocate lands to Sipahis. Okay. Unlike the uh, feudal European system, these Sipahis only had right to use the taxes. So they were not entitled to use the land as it belonged to them. The land belonged to the state. The state allocate the tax revenue of certain lands to the Timaroid cavalry. So Timaroid cavalry was light cavalry. And depending upon the land allocated to them, they had to bring soldiers when the state asked for it. So it was kind of a communist, uh, communism before it was communism, in a sense. Uh, not communism, uh, but something within the tradition of the Roman Empire, mm. 
plus you need to include the Islamic element into it. So land-based soldiers was not something the Ottomans invented. They simply developed these land-based soldiers into a better system. And because in-kind taxes, you cannot transport them in hundreds of or thousands of kilometers. So by creating military that could able to get the taxes on the site and create military units that the empires able to use them whenever it wants, uh, something that uh, was the biggest secret behind the milita uh, military success of the Ottomans. And the same Sipahis also used for internal security duties. So during the peacetime, the Sipahis responsible of providing security of the region to people, the trade, protection of the roads and other kind of services that the state needed. So they were not simply uh, military personnel, but they were also, they had also some uh, administrative duties. They had also some law enforcement duties. The Ottomans uh, used the same system for the fortresses because uh, early modern period means thousands of fortresses, especially in Europe, against the Habsburgs, initially against the Hungarians, later against the Habsburgs. Hundreds of huge fortresses covering the area. So how can you feed the garrisons of these fortresses? How can you pay their salaries? And the Ottomans, again, make use of land allocations. So giving lands to the uh, different members of the garrison. So these garrison members, by using the tax revenues of the lands allocated to them, they perform the services of defending the castle, providing administrative and law enforcement duties. The Ottomans only pay in cash their Kapakulu corps, Janissaries and others. The auxiliary corps, the provincial cavalry, Timari cavalry, I mean, and other provincial troops all receive their salaries from uh, the local uh, taxes. And this brings us to the next part, when, when, when we spoke about this again in the previous episode, but Want to bring it up again when when they are abolishing with abolishing their janissaries and we spoke to this about this before the returning an absolute power, correct absolutely and uh, the janissaries at at the time of Mahmoud the second, they're really corrupt they're very relevant at this time as you as well mentioned in the book, so how difficult was it to get rid because their channel stood in the way, to modernize and and get an effective Ottoman army. So how difficult was it to abolish the Janissaries in Mahmoud's time? Okay. Uh, there's a special phrase called it Praetorian God. Praetorian God phrase born with the Romans. Uh, the Roman empires face frequent soldier revolts 
because the various soldiers, they train, equip, and pay the salaries uh, from time to time rebel against the emperor, rebel against the government. And the Ottomans also suffer the same problems during the classical period. Although in terms of numbers, the genocide is few, but they were very efficient elite corps and they were located at the capital city and some important provincial centers. So they had immense power, but the, like the Roman Praetorian gods, Genesis never rebel alone. Their all rebellions united with the different political factions in the capital. So they always rebel with alliance with some important uh, government figures, important pashas, generals, or uh, important persons within the court. They never rebel alone. And when they rebel alone, their rebellions easily crash. The problem was after 16th century, when the numbers of the genocides increase, the rules and regulations controlling them had to be slackened. So previously, the Genesis were not allowed to have family while in service. A Genesis only able to get married after retirement. But during the 16th, especially the second half of the 16th century, the Genesis started to create families. Their numbers are increasing and uh, because their numbers increasing, the government had to pay the salaries in cash in comparison to provincial troops. The governments always got into economic crisis. And when they tried to solve the crisis, they devaluate the money, devaluation. And they made the de devaluation by putting copper into the silver coins. So making the worth of the money less or cutting uh, some part of the coin, so making the amount of silver within the coin less. And this devaluation put the genesis into difficult condition, like any salaried person in modern economy. If there's inflation and if your money losing its value, what will you do? So the Genesis initially rebelled, but later on, they started to create uh, find new jobs in addition to soldiering. So during the peacetime, the Genesis started to deal with opening small shops or working as daily laborers. So uh, it transformed from a military corps into a kind of a social class. So the Genesis all of a sudden transform into uh, lower middle and upper lower class segment, small shop owners, daily laborers, and also receiving military salary. And with these uh, issues increasing, the Genesis also started losing their soldierly behavior and military effectiveness. And the governments suffer difficulty to mobilize the Genesis for frequent military expeditions. 
So when they couldn't move the Janissaries out of the capital, they had to hire mercenaries. So with the failure of the Janissaries as a military corps, uh, the government had to depend more to military mercenaries. And one thing that all the military mercenaries wanted in the Ottoman Empire to get a place within the Janissary course. So the governments, while mobilizing the mercenaries, promised them getting a place with the Janissary cause if the military expedition turned out to be success. So the genocide numbers increasing, the genocide is losing their soldierly qualities, transforming from a military cause into a social economic class. Uh, all of a sudden, we are having a huge problem uh, for the sultans. So the genocide is not necessarily very conservative. They simply would like to preserve their interests they were receiving a salary, although small, but right. it was important for them to survive within the Ottoman economic system. And they had their families, they had civilian jobs, and they would like to protect their prestige and privileges because being a janissary means the ordinary law enforcement could not uh, bother you. You have protection against the ordinary law enforcement, and this gives you an advantage in the economy and in the social life. Uh, so starting from especially uh, 1730s, we are not uh, seeing genocides as a military corps, but a privileged social class, especially located in Istanbul, the capital city, but also the provisional centers, because uh, in order to protect these sites, the Ottoman government sent different Janissary garrisons to the provisional centers, and these Janissaries remained there throughout all the time, and they transformed into a local group. So in addition to Janissaries, in Istanbul, there were Janissaries in all the big provincial centers. And the abolishing of the Janissaries was quite brutal as well. Well, uh, that was the Ottoman system. The Ottomans were not good reformers. When one military corps, unable to fulfill its uh, roles, the Ottomans, instead of abolishing and creating a completely new system, they preferred to create a new course next to the old course and waited the old course to die away. We see the examples from the very beginning, from uh, the foundation of the Janissary course, for example. Before the Janissaries, the Ottomans had a special call called the Yaya, that means infantry. And instead of abolishing the Yaya, the Ottomans founded Janissaries, waited the Yaya losing their combat effectiveness, and then moved the Yayas into combat service support roles, using them for transportation or logistical purposes. So the Ottomans, very conservative, 
in terms of keeping the military institutions intact as long as it lasted. So when uh, Selim III decided to create a new corps, instead of dealing with the genissaries, Selim III created a separate military corps and hoped that the new corps transform into a strong uh, unit so that by using the strong unit, he could able to deal with the genocide problem completely. It turned out to be not the good way to do it. And Selim III was killed it, uh, during that period. Mahmoud II, uh, the Sultan after the Selim III, used a different system. He created lots of local alliances, including alliances with different military corps. And then he get rid of the genissaries bloodily, in a very bloody way. He tried to kill all the genissaries he managed to capture. Okay, the genissaries, don't forget, at that time in 1826 was a social group. So you are not destroying only a military corps, but you are also destroying a social group within the capital city, Istanbul. It was a huge bloody bath for the city. Thousands of people got killed, it. Uh, some of them innocent, but uh, Mahmoud II found no other way but to eliminate them all. But Mahmoud made a big mistake by thinking that provincial genocidic cause were also the same type as the ones in Istanbul. So when he moved to eliminate the provincial genocidic cause, uh, it caused big rebellions, especially in Bosnia. And instead of increasing the security of the empire, it decreases the security of the empire because this provincial genocidic cause serving some purpose, some military and law enforcement purposes in the provinces. Right. When you get rid of them, a huge void appeared in the provinces and all of a sudden the Ottomans started to see lots of rebellions in the Balkans and the Arabian provinces. So uh, the Ottomans waited too long to reform the genocides. And when they couldn't reform the genesis, they decided to eliminate them all in a very bloody way. And this caused a huge void within the empire, not only militarily, but also in socio-economic ways. And it, uh, the Ottomans had to suffer at least 50 years uh, to fill the void. Hmm. Would you say that this is a time when the gen the Ottoman military kind of become ir irrelevant after the abolishment of the Janissaries? Well, uh, when you get rid of your military army, you need to create a new one. So Mahmoud II had to spend a lot of time to create a new army. But don't forget, while you are trying to create the new army, you are also facing foreign threats. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't forget 1826, 
the abolishment, uh, bloody end of the Genesis, also the time period of the Greek independence war. The Greek just 200 years ago, actually. Continue until 1827. And don't forget, in 1827-28, you got into a war with the Russia. The Crimean War. And the Ottoman army is defeated because at that time you didn't have an army. You have to collect mercenaries, provincial volunteers, etc. And don't forget, with the elimination of the genesis, you also eliminated your officer corps also. So you need to find officers to command these armies. And it took such a long time. And uh, unfortunately, the Ottomans didn't have the time because of all the wars going on in the empire. You had the great independence, the Crimean War, you had the... No, sorry, the but, well, Ottoman-Russian War. Um, I don't know if that's the Crimean War. You had all these different types of things going on in the empire at the time. Well, uh, you know something? The Ottomans able to overlast some of their more stronger enemies, I mean. Mm. Uh, the Russian uh, Empire ended in 1917. The Ottomans were still fighting. <laughs> hmm. So the Ottoman Empire uh, literally ended in 1922. And don't forget the Austria-Hungary, the famous Habsburgs, uh, divided into small, small pieces well before the Ottomans. The Ottomans also overlasted their Persian enemies. And so to a certain extent, when you are looking to the last centuries of the Ottoman empires, pay attention not to use decline term a lot. I mean, although there were lots of wars during that period and the Ottomans lost uh, huge territories from time to time, but still, the Ottomans able to provide peace and security to different parts of the empires. The Ottomans created a completely new army basing upon the European models. So these are not small successes. And when you are evaluating the Ottomans, pay attention to other non-European nations. What had happened to them? I mean, think about what is happening in India. Think about Persia, think about China. Uh, so the Ottomans turn out to be very successful in facing all the might of the Europe. Of course, they play uh, the famous diplomatic game of that area using one power against the others in order to survive series of crises. But this also shows the talent of the empires. And when the Ottoman Empire ended completely uh, for most of the territories in 1918, after the end of the First World War, for Anatolia in 1922, uh, I mean, think about what happened in the Middle East after the Ottomans. Did mm. Middle East find peace and security? Uh, no. And all of a sudden, the hated Ottoman period transform into a period of peace for most of the lands. Of course, some regions frequently face military activities. I mean, the Hungarian lands of the 
Ottoman empires uh, in addition to big walls, Langye creeks, Klein creeks, small walls, always happening. That is also true for the Caucasus and the Persian front line, frontiers. But think about the other parts of the empires. I mean, the other parts living under peace without big problems. So the Ottomans somehow managed to govern these lands uh, effectively able to tax the people, able to get the soldiers they are looking for, and also still preserve the peace. Because after you remove the Ottoman Empire from the geography, instead of coming more prosperity and peace in which the local people were hoping for, they faced more wars, devastation, and lots of other terrible things. I'm not trying to... Uh, uh make the ottomans as wonderful good guys i'm just trying to give the sense that the empire system works differently than a nation state so the, but the europeans didn't, European didn't understand the ottoman system they didn't understand how I it mean, worked to understand the ottomans always think about the romans all this mediterranean style empires so Ottomans was the last Mediterranean empire. To understand the Ottomans, you need to understand the logic of the empire system. Because in an empire, every individual had different layers of identity. So an ordinary individual would have a local identity, a regional identity, an ethnic identity, a religious identity, and an imperial identity. So something like a cake with different layers. Mm -hmm. So it is always difficult to identify the real identity of an individual. And that was the reason why at the end of the Ottomans, some people from the same family labeled themselves Turks. The other members of the family labeled themselves Arabs, depending upon uh, the place depending upon the fortune and the same individual calling himself Ottoman, Turk, Kurd, Arab, depending upon the rise and the fall of the fortunes. So uh, one thing very important, Ottoman Empire was not an extraordinary, unusual political uh, entity. The Ottoman army was not an unusual exotic army. The Ottoman army was a European army with its own uh, identity, with its own colors, differences, etc. So when you get into the Ottoman military history, you need to consider the Ottomans always with the neighboring countries with the contemporary military system in the same period. Otherwise, you could not understand the Ottomans. You could not understand the type of weapons they are using because the same weapons used by other nations also. You could not understand some of the tactics and techniques. You could not understand how and why that particular military unit created and in the end destroyed. 
all this information blended with the time period and with the geography the Ottomans living. So we need to treat the Ottoman military story as a part of the global military story. Otherwise, we will end up in a completely wrong places. I also asked this question in episodes like this. What would you say is the conclusion of the Ottoman military? Well, uh, the Ottomans left not only to the geography that the Ottomans control and congress, but also the neighboring countries and also globally. So the Ottoman Empire was not unusual political entity. It was born from the Middle East, from the Balkans. It governed three continents, Eastern Europe, uh, Asia, the Northern Africa. And because it was an empire, it managed to make use uh, the potential of the subject nations. And during the age of the nationalism, as you can expect, the Ottoman Empire uh, ended. But until the very last day, the Ottoman Empire still meant something to its citizens. They may, they might not like the Ottoman Empire, but the Ottoman Empire still means something to them. But uh, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire during the First World War, uh, the history of the Ottoman Empire and the history of the Ottoman military treated as a kind of a dark age, especially in the Balkans and also the Arab nations. They try to forget about their Ottoman uh, history, their recent history. Uh, instead, they wrote down lots of books about their history before the Ottomans. So luckily, after a century later, uh, after 100 years, uh, people start looking the Ottomans differently, not seeing the Ottoman period as a dark age. We need to discuss this issue openly with all the participants. Otherwise, we might stuck in one narrative, either painting the Ottoman Empire completely white or painting the Ottoman Empire completely in dark colors. Mm -hmm. uh, none of these colors represent the Ottomans. The Ottoman Empire was very colorful. It had a long life, nearly 600 years. So when you are talking about Genesis, what period Genesis you are talking about? Are you talking about the foundation period, the classical period, uh, 17th century, or just uh, at the beginning of 19th century? Because it's nearly 600 years. So when you are talking about the Ottoman uh, cavalry course, you need to specify the time period or the geography, because the Ottomans knew that under the new firearms, having light cavalry was useless, but it was useless in Europe. It still served to a purpose in the East against the Persians. In the Middle East, in the Arab lands, 
the cavalry still playing an important role. The Ottomans did not have the luxury of two separate armies fighting in two different geographies. They had a single army fighting in the west, in the east, in the south. And in order to understand some of the expeditions, military expeditions, you need to understand the imperial mentality. Why the Ottomans went to Yemen and spent so much time and effort to keep the Yemen under their control. You need to understand the imperial logic. Otherwise, I mean, you may see it, it was completely useless to send soldiers far away in such a distant land. But according to the imperial logic, it worked to a purpose because you are not talking about a national state. You are talking about an empire with a special political frame and political aims. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Before you go, do you have anything you want to promote? Where can people find your book? Anything you wish me to put in the description of the episode? Well, uh, I mean, if you have the wheel and time, uh, we may discuss my new book in the next uh, chapters because In January 2002, a new book of me published mm. by Rutledge. And this is about the last period of the Ottomans, the Ottoman army and the First World War. And this is a more detailed book because the book uh, we discussed today, a single volume, uh, nearly 350 pages, covering the 600 years of the Ottoman Empire. So this book is just covering four and a half year of the empire in relatively the same size, uh, nearly 400 pages. So if you have the time and will, we may discuss my new Maybe in the next, next episode. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. My name is Alan. This has been Well That Age 12. We are available on Instagram and on Well That Age 12. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. And please consider taking time to rate us on Apple Podcasts. We're going to be most appreciated. And write a little review if you took the time. It doesn't take much time. Please like, share, and subscribe. Next week, we will take a look at the history of nationalism. And I'll see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.